a huge welcome and uh, and also to Adam. You don't you, you know this, but let's go through it again. Adam Phillips is a psychoanalyst, a literary critic, an essayist. He's written many acclaimed books, and most of them are on my bookshelves, including Missing Out, Going Sane, Being Bored, Side Effects, and, and one of my personal favorites, On Kindness, written with Barbara Taylor. He's also the general editor of the new Penguin translation of Freud's work. So tonight, we're going to have a conversation circling some of the ideas in his dazzling and subversive new book, Unforbidden Pleasures, in which he suggests that forbidden pleasures have perhaps stolen the show. Um, and considers some of the meanings and importance of the unforbidden, the underrated unforbidden. What would it take to renew or recover unforbidden pleasures? So Adam is one of the few writers whose books I buy in hardback. The other writer, um, I always uh, bought in hardback, <coughs> were, uh, were the novels of the great dystopian J.G. Uh, Ballard. Um, why is that? Well, perhaps because of um, some reasons that are sort of forbidden. Uh, the value of reading, for me, is following a thought drift and not knowing where it's going to land. And when it does land in Adam's work, it might not be in a place that's particularly comfortable, um, in an increasingly consumerist culture. It might not land in a, somewhere I want to buy. So... When I read Freud's Civilization and Discontents, I don't, I don't think, oh, everything's going to be fine then. Um, but I keep turning the pages. Most of all, I read Adam's books for the attention given to language. Now, I know that shouldn't be too surprising, given that he's a psychoanalyst. But I'm not talking about perfectly crafted sentences, although they are there in abundance in, in all his work about his attention to the entire structure of language, which I would expect, that kind of attention, I would expect from a writer of fiction too. And I'm often disappointed. So my first question is about reading. And I hope, uh, I'm sorry to quote uh, something that you said in an interview. Back to you, I hate it when it's done to me but perhaps I'm not sorry enough. Um, you were talking about the first time you read Winnicott's playing in reality, and you are quoted as saying that it felt like the next stage of English literature. What did you mean? In what way? I'm not sure I said that, actually, <laughs> um, but I'll pretend that I did. Yeah. When I read... I read Playing in Reality when it came out, and I had that experience, I think, that you can probably only have in adolescence, which was that I really felt the book had been written for me, or to me, or even by me, in some sense, in that I felt as though 
there was some, I had some really powerful affinity with the voice in the book. I also felt as though I completely understood the book. I can't imagine what I thought it was about then. But anyway, it seems to me actually a rather difficult book to understand. But then I thought, I really get this. And I think the bridge it made was that I was really interested in what was then called English literature. And coming across Winnicott, it was as though Winnicott was a writer. So I got it first as writing. Mm. Because the only previous book I'd read on psychoanalysis was Jung's Autobiography. And I th- I, it was a very, for me, a very powerful book, and in some ways a rather inspiring book, but it wasn't an interestingly written book. Of course, it was translated, but it didn't seem, Jung didn't seem to me to be an interesting writer, whatever that means. It wasn't interesting to me. Winnicott seemed to me an extraordinarily interesting writer, with a, a really idiomatic style, in which there was no way, really, you could um, paraphrase what it was he was saying that you could be moved by it and intrigued by it and have a strong sense of what it was about, but you couldn't, having finished the essay or the book, tell anybody else or yourself what it was about, really. And I loved that, that it wasn't formulatable, but it was extremely engaging. And then I thought, that's what I would like psychoanalytic writing to be like. Then I read some psychoanalytic writing. Of course, most of it was ghastly (laughs) to me. Um, But I thought Freud was a very, very interesting writer. And so that carried it for me. So I went from reading Winnicott to reading Freud, out of curiosity about psychoanalysis. But it was that, I think it was as though um, reading Winnicott made it possible to imagine that psychoanalysis could be an extension for me of the literature that interested me. Mm. Yeah. I was teaching at the Royal College of Art for a while, and uh, I was lucky enough to have one of my colleagues be the ceramicist, Alison Britton. And... Winnicott was her uncle, Mm. and she told me this incredible story uh, when she was a child um, in New York with her cousins. uh, Uncle Donald uh, picked up a fruit bowl from the table, uh, got down on the floor with the children, and said, take the juiciest, biggest pear, take the, the grape that is most lustrous and desirable to you and all the rest of it. He went He went round this fruit bowl for children. And Alison uh, said that this was absolutely unheard of. Children of her generation were told always to take the most withered apple and to take the grape that was nearly dead so that, in a way, Winnicott had unforbidden the, the forbidden mm. fruit. Mm, mm. Um, Could I it, just say something yeah. about that? Uh, there was a wonderful obituary by Peter Tizard of Winnicott in which he said it wasn't that Winnicott understood children, it was that children understood him. <laughs> yes. Mm. In this extraordinary book, um, you explore this idea... In our unforbidden pleasures, we get a glimpse of what a life without obedience would be like. How so? Well, um, forbidden pleasures are based on intimidation. Now, the paradox of forbidden pleasures is that if somebody forbids you something, of course, you become interested in it. It's a way of engaging somebody's interest. So when you're forbidden something, you can't help but think both of the rule and the experience of which you are forbidden. It seems to me that 
the forbidden pleasures depend upon obedience insofar as you have to remember the rule. In fact, in a way, you have to remember the, the rule in such a way that it seems as though you're not remembering it, you're just living as if it's true. So it becomes, in a sense, indelible. So, in a way, I think, and I think this is said in the book, the worst kind of obedience, you might think, is unconscious obedience. In which you don't think, I'm following a rule, you think, this is just what we do here. This is how we live. So, the thing about unforbidden pleasures, it seems to me, is that, that they're not based on... Um, well, they're not based on coercion. So they don't have a quality of terror about them or intimidation or dread. And of course, that's their drawback too, because they appear to be much less exciting. So in a way, the book is in partly in praise of all the excitements and pleasures we can't think about because they're based on, on unforbidden pleasures. It's as though um, the unforbidden pleasures have stolen the show and as though we then associate pleasure with transgression. When in fact, most of our pleasures are not transgressive, and indeed most of the pleasures of childhood are not transgressive. And if you read or interested in psychoanalysis, you will know that the childhood experience is dominated by, on the one hand, the Oedipal configuration, by transgressive desire, and also, in a sense, at an earlier level, the fear of being overwhelmed by excitement or pleasure or pain or whatever. What gets lost in that is all the experiences that are not a problem but that are pleasurable. Or all the experiences that are not particularly conflictual. I mean, nobody's going to have a huge problem tomorrow morning about whether they have a cup of coffee or not. But so much taken for granted is this, that also no one is going to turn up to their analyst or indeed say to their best friend, I had a really great cup of coffee this morning. Why would they? But what this means, and this is a kind of paradoxical fact, I think, is that the unforbidden pleasures are in fact repressed. People don't talk about them. They just do them. And it seems to me then a lot of experience has been left unarticulated that might be very, very important in our lives and certainly be one thread of the continuity in our lives. All the cups of coffee we've had, all the pleasurable conversations we've had with our friends. I mean, there are a million experiences like this, but that's the gist of it. Whereas it seems to me that the, the forbidden actually, the forbidden creates a transgressive hero or heroine. Whereas unforbidden pleasures don't create heroes or heroines at all. They also, you also don't need courage for them. You also don't need to take risks to have a bar of chocolate. Well, that's sort of a risk, but it's a minimal risk. So that I think in a way, if you take unforbidden pleasures seriously, you then lose a whole moral vocabulary. Mm. So, so the unforbidden, in a sense, is more experimental. Than Mu- much more experimental. And much more capable of improvisation and innovation, actually. Because tr- the forbidden pleasures are very heavily coded and, very spe- by definition, specifically forbidden. Mm. And so there's a, it seems to me there's a problem in growing up, which is an interesting problem, which is the problem of being told what it is you desire as opposed to a, a, a situation which you might find out, or you might go on experimenting with that. Yeah. And you use uh, John Cage's definition mm. of the experimental. Can mm. you talk a little bit about that? Yes. I mean, Cage has a very interesting definition of the experimental, which is that the experimental is not something you judge in terms of success or failure. You judge it entirely in terms of unknowable outcome. 
the reason this is interesting, uh, I mean, it's interesting for lots of reasons, but one interesting bit about it is that it means that the result of an experiment is always unknown in any absolute terms, because, of course, it has unknowable future consequences. So, you know, it's like the, you know, was the French Revolution a success? It's too early to tell. <laughs> well, it's a version of that. Um, so I think Cage interests me because he's interested in... Um, receptivity rather than a kind of imperialism in relation to experience. So, I mean, there are a million John Cage stories, and probably lots of you know them, but there is, for example, a famous ish story about somebody goes to visit Cage in the Chelsea Hotel and where he lives, and there are car alarms going on all, going on all the time outside. So the person says to him, don't you find this very distracting when you're composing music? And he said... No, I think of car alarms as sound sculpture. Now, if you experiment with this, and the next time you hear one go off and you're irritated, you think of it as sound sculpture. It's really very different. (laughs) And what Cage is interested in, and he says this in lots of different ways in lots of different periods of his life, is that his project, so to speak, was not to become more focused, but to become less focused. So he was, as he would say a million times in different ways, more interested in noise than in music. Because noise is everywhere and music isn't. Um, so Cage is is a kind of sensibility in the middle of this book that I like. I mean, I've always liked him. Because he's, it seems to me, genuinely interested in what you might find yourself enjoying as opposed to experiences that you've prepared yourself to enjoy. Yeah. So that subversive idea that the unforbidden is, is, is more experimental. Um, when you write... Do you know the outcome? No, 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 not at all. No, it's, it's literally, uh, one sentence leads to another. I don't mean this in some sort of disingenuous or wild anarchic way at all, mm. because it's obviously all already, been, in some sense, already mm. been written in somewhere in my, I don't know where, but, but it's as though um, the sentence is just um, one comes out of another. So there's a, a flow to it, but it's not planned, and in that sense... It's really interesting to me, because I can read these books and think, I couldn't have thought of that. <laughs> or, or that's really interesting. Not, I'm really interesting, but it yes. is. Because yeah. the book's more intelligent than the yes. author, obviously. <laughs> it has to be. Mm. You, start, you start the book with Oscar Wilde um, in a brilliant chapter called Laying Down the Law. Why, why Wilde, who, who suffered so badly from, for his unforbidden desire? I think, well, I think lots of reasons. I, don't, it's, I mean, as you know, it's very hard to know what the answer to those questions are because it, it's a bit like your last question about, you know, do you know what, what you're going to write? What I did know, or must have known, was that I want to start that chapter with Wilde. And I think it's something to do with the way in which Wilde wants to aestheticize morality. So when he, for example, says it's much more important to develop a colour sense than to know the difference between good and evil, that seems to be a very interesting redescription. Because what it means is that you then have more of an open... There's there's more open curiosity, it seems to me, potentially. So I think he's interested in in redescription. I also think that one of the things about reading a wild... one of some wild's prose, or indeed going to the plays, is or the dialogues, is that people talk incredibly interestingly and pleasurably to each other. 
I mean, you re- if you like them. If you, you go to these places and go, why don't people talk this all the time? It's amazing. <laughs> well, it's as though the implicit point in that is we do something really terrible when we make our talk uninteresting. <laughs> so on the one hand, it's a must-try harder. You know, we really should make a bit of an effort here. But also, we should also allow ourselves to speak more whatever <coughs> the word is. And I think Wilde is very interesting about sociability. Because I think he makes you feel that the possibilities for sociability are sort of amazing. They're exorbitant. And one of the things the book is, is about, as far as it's about things, it's about the fact that we can get a tremendous amount of pleasure from each other's company. That we really can enjoy each other's presence. And it's not all about forbidden pleasure. Now, it seems to me, Wilde's plays are really about the forbidden and really about the unforbidden. In other words, he always wants them together, almost as though you, if you can re-describe forbidden pleasures in unforbidden terms, they open up. So you talk about good and evil in terms of a colour sense. And you think, well, how do you do that? And that's the point. Then you have to use a different vocabulary. So I think it's something to do with that. Plus, of course, the life itself is very, very poignant and tragic. Because he was, as he said, punished for his virtues. <laughs> yeah, punished for his virtues. My favourite quote from Wilde, I actually got from the New Zealand writer Catherine Mansfield. Um, I, I read it in one of her diaries. So it's very interesting how these quotes are sort of passed on mm-hmm. by, by other things you read. And he said, being natural is only a pose and the most irritating pose. I know. But Wilde's very good about the way in which everything is styled. The way in which, in a sense, everything is is an artifact. Uh, Most particularly the things that look least like artifacts. You know, that's part of the repertoire is the artifact of authenticity or of naturalness or of my real self or of me being spontaneous. You know, all that stuff. Well, he's very good about that. And he's very good about how it's staged in language very often. That we're, it's like Nietzsche said, you know, show me a great man and I'll show you a man aping his own ideal. Hmm. It's that. Hmm. Obedience is the wish not to know something. How so? Well, because it's a conversation stopper. That once you've agreed to consent... It's as though that's the end of the conversation. Now, it's not that obedience in and of itself is a bad thing. It's that it is worth being able to talk about the points at which you've decided to consent. Because the risk is that one internalizes from childhood some kind of reverential awe for authority. And that you're going to find it somewhere. Whereas, it seems to me one of the things that, this is uh, one of the really good things about psychoanalysis is it's a place in the culture where you can reconsider the history of your own obedience. Mm-hmm. Because everybody, I think I say this in a word, I can't remember, but I mean, everybody, when they're thinking about their childhood, whatever else they're thinking about, they're thinking about the things that they've consented to <coughs> they didn't really agree with. So one's history is a history of obedience, whatever else it is. Mm-hmm. And of course that has real consequences in terms of how, how one can imagine oneself. So the book is in favour of not disobedience as a project, which would be as the same as obedience, yeah. so much as the thought that when you're being obedient, you must. it's worth wondering, what kind of pleasure is this? What kind of pleasure are you giving to the authorities? And do you actually value the thing to which you're being obedient? 
These are ordinary liberal questions. But they can easily get lost, especially when the obedience is unconscious. Yeah. It'd be a very good way to write a biography of, or, or a memoir. Um, Merle Ponty suggested that one could start with trying to remember every door yeah. uh, we had opened, we had ever opened or closed. Mm-hmm. Another way in, it just strikes me, would be to think about every single time we'd been obe- consented yeah. to be um, obedient. Be a, be a great memoir, be a great, great way in. I mean, another unforbidden pleasure that particularly interested me. Uh, you, 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 you write about Blake and Wordsworth and their childhood absorption yeah. as an unforbidden, unforbidden pleasure. Mm. Yeah, that's, it seems to me one of the most interesting unforbidden pleasures of childhood is the capacity to forget oneself, to lose oneself, to become absorbed. And it seems to me that this is something that I think they're very interested in the fate of self-forgetting in adulthood and how increasingly growing up or growing up in the cultures they're talking about requires a kind of hypervigilance. So we become acutely self-conscious and therefore extremely anxious about forgetting ourselves. And again, it seems to me this is a very good thing potentially that psychoanalysts can do, which is it can enable you to lose interest in yourself. That that it's it's a way of, because um, obviously oneself, well, I don't want to speak for everyone in this room, but oneself is actually rather repetitious and boring, whereas other people are very, very interesting, it seems to me, and the world is extremely various, whereas oneself is very repetitious for kind of obvious reasons. Now, it seems to me that pr- one of the projects in psychoanalysis is to enable somebody to actually forget about themselves, such that they can engage with the world and other people. And and I think this this comes into... British psychoanalysis from romantic poetry and then in Marin Milner. Mm-hmm. And so if you wanted a psychoanalytic story about this, you'd read her. And one of the most interesting things about this, in terms of the, this book or these thoughts, is that Milner believes that the capacity to be absorbed predates and in a sense prefigures transgressive pleasures. Now this is a difficult thing to picture exactly, but what it means is that what Milner is suggesting is that what could be more important is a kind of reunion with the world, that's a being more of a peace with the world, as opposed to transgressively separating oneself out from it. So in other words, the world doesn't have to be plundered in order to be joined up with. It can be about relinquishing a certain kind of self-preoccupation. And so she... I think is very interesting. She often is doing this when she talks about painting. But how you can get yourself, or how you can a- enable yourself, basically to be sufficiently unparanoid, not to have to be hypervigilant. And then you can see what's going on around you. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm thinking, uh, I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Blake, um, who you write about so well, and... Um, and how his parents did become hypervigilant because when William Blake was nine he, he, he walked across Peckham Common and came back and told his dad that he, he'd seen a tree crowded with angels and, um, and his father became hypervigilant and thought that he 
you, you should be educated at home. He might have hard, a hard time at school. While I was, while I was reading um, your book, I, I liked to think of myself as someone who... Um, I always, I've always felt a bit like bad for William that his father had this response, don't tell lies, William. Mm. But then it occurred to me that maybe if my child came back from school and said, uh, I, I've seen a tree crowded with angels... I might become a little bit anxious, and I didn't like that version of myself at all. Um, I prefer, perhaps, you know, to say I imagined I saw a tree crowded with angels, and I realized that I had forbidden anxiety. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And even your, your, you might forbid your child's anxiety. I mean, it's a bit like, you know, if your five-year-old son comes up to you and says, I want to be an astronaut, if you say, no, no, you're a four-year-old boy... It's quite different from saying that would be very exciting. And they're different attitudes to the child's potential self. So when you were telling me the Blake story, I don't know, this, is, uh, this may be a free association, but other people may see the link. There's a story that Sartre tells somewhere, which you, some people you may know, of a young married couple. And the story is this. Every morning, the young married couple come down for breakfast. They have breakfast, and the um, husband leaves for work. And the wife, the young wife, sits by the window crying all day until he comes back. And when he comes back, she perks up. Sartre says, well, the obvious interpretation of this is that she's got a separation anxiety. But the true separate, the true interpretation of this is that actually when her husband leaves, she's free. She's frightened of her freedom. She could do not whatever she likes, but she could think about what she might want to do. So I think these are the two, this is like two versions of this. You know, there's either yeah. a determined self-restriction or there's the anxiety and the exhilaration of a certain kind of freedom. It is a subversive, uh, it's a subversive title, Unforbidden Pleasures. Um, and when I was thinking on my way here of what my own unforbidden pleasures might be, um, it did feel a bit like sucking up to the headmaster and, and, and deciding not to smoke behind the bike sheds. But one of the unforbidden pleasures um, that occurred to me was a, a, a real pleasure in kindness. And this is something that you, you, you have written about as, 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 as something perhaps culturally forbidden. Yes, or, or made culturally undesirable yeah. in a certain kind of capitalist competitive. I mean, if competition is the only game in town, then kindness will be a weakness. Um, and it seems to me, I mean, my assumption, and this could of course be a wish, is that people are naturally, instinctively, originally kind, that's say they identify with other people's suffering, and then they have to inure themselves to it. A, because it's too painful, and B, because the culture discourages it too much. And that seems to me to be a real shame, and uh, the real loss of a profound human pleasure, which is being of the same kind. And that there, there could be a fundamental collaborative feeling that could predate, out of anxiety, the alternative which separates people out. And you do flag up the possibility that um, unforbidden pleasures might just be the consolation of the middle-aged. Well, it isn't hedonism for old people's homes. <laughs> um, but, of course, what's interesting in a way is, A, that you would think the title is subversive. 
because that, in a way, the effect that effect is interesting. Um, I think it would be a shame to think uh, this is an elegy for my youth. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I I adored being young, actually, but I don't think of aging as the loss of my youth. Mm-hmm. It isn't like that. But I think the point is that it joins things up. Lots of childhood, lots of the hours and minutes of childhood are in unforbidden involved in unforbidden pleasures. And it seems to me that's going to be the real continuity of our lives. Now, you may not want continuity. You may want an episodic life. If there are certain kinds of continuity you might want, one of the forms they might take would be unforbidden pleasures. So you wouldn't then think, my really exciting life is aged 14 to 40, or whatever. You would think, you're going to be discovering as you go along different pleasures and different renunciations, partly to do with physiology, but also partly to do with, with, with emotional need and so on. So there wouldn't be a sort of highlight period of transgressive sex or whatever it happens to be. Or you wouldn't think, my best self is my transgressive self. I don't mean you shouldn't think that because you could think it. But you could, there could be rivals. There could be rival claims here. And it could be that, that Forbidding desire brings out the worst in us, <laughs> actually. And it sort of makes us hate desire because it's such an ordeal. Mm. Desire is such an ordeal. Hamlet didn't like being young very much. No, he didn't, but he did have a tough time. You can see why, if you've had those experiences, you wouldn't, you'd look back in anger. Could you read from the book? Sure, yeah. I'll just read the coda. This is the... It's only two and a half pages. In the French edition, um, this is the beginning, for some reason. I suppose it could be both. Those who want to change us are those who want to persuade us that we've got our pleasures wrong, that what we enjoy and the ways we enjoy are in some way harmful to ourselves and others. The so-called fundamentalists of any faith want to settle these questions once and for all, these questions about what we should enjoy, and believe they know how to do this. So-called liberals want to keep these questions open and undecidable in any final way. Both these groups are telling us what the lives are that we should want and how we should get them, and what conversations we should want and how we should get them. And both groups define themselves by what they forbid. Their motto is, look after the forbidden and everything else will take care of itself. Both the fundamentalists and the liberals believe that pleasures can only be assessed or evaluated by the harm they do. They are both above all impressed by our potential to harm, and believing in our potential to harm makes us more harmful. So everything ultimately depends upon how harm is defined and who defines it. Unforbidden pleasures, at least compared with forbidden ones, are of course relatively harmless. People don't tend to kill for unforbidden pleasures. Clearly, we want harm and pleasure to be somehow inextricable. Or rather, we've come to think of the harmful pleasures as better. Passion, for example, is assumed to be profounder than affection. What we don't know is what a society organised more around unforbidden pleasures than forbidden pleasures would be like. What a society would be like that didn't start from the principle and therefore promote the principle that we are primarily a danger to ourselves and others. We should, that is to say, also be able to start with a simple acknowledgement that it is extraordinary how much pleasure we can get from each other's company, most of which is unforbidden. 
And so that, and that so much depends on our capacity or our willingness to protect our pleasure in each other, and indeed on how we bear the consequences of its loss and its recovery. That we have good reasons to fear each other shouldn't be allowed to obscure how much we can enjoy each other. But how do you get people to change their pleasures, or stick to the pleasures that are approved? Now that we are more wary than ever about conversion experiences, what ways of changing people can we afford to value? What languages can we use to evaluate people's pleasures and to transform them? And what can we then do when language doesn't do the trick? Solving these and similar questions, as Philip Larkin wrote in his poem Days, quote, brings the priest and the doctor in their long coats running over the fields, end of quote. If it was not the priest and the doctor, who could it be now? And what might they be wearing? Yeah. Um, one of the things that reminds me of is, is, again, coming back to writing, is that when we kind of write about someone who transgresses the forbidden, the only way um, that ever works is to find out what makes them ordinary. Um, and perhaps what makes them ordinary is the unforbidden. So I'd like to hand over to you now. Um, you have to take questions. Sure. Yeah. Um, at about 9.55, I had, I purchased a really lovely cupped coffee. Um, and a Chelsea bun. I could have quite easily uh, Instagrammed this experience. Um, should, can you hear me with that microphone? Yeah, yeah, I can, actually, yes, fine. Um, it strikes me that um, the unforbidden is alive and well in the 21st century in social media. I hear that friends of mine are going for poo. Well, I think the, the unforbidden is alive and well, that's for sure. I think you'll also find that people are transmitting all sorts of other things on the internet and through social media, like pictures of themselves naked and so on. So I think inevitably this is going to be a mixed thing. What I want to promote is the is not against the, the forbidden, which seems to me incredibly exciting. But I also want to promote the, um, the sense in which unforbidden pleasures might not be relished quite as much as they might be, because there's no language for them, because we haven't found them sufficiently interesting. And pleasure has been defined by its, in its forbidden versions. So I think, I'm sure you're right, see, in a way, um, Instagram, say, might be at its best and worst, but at its best, about circulating very ordinary pleasures. You know, people always say, people um, communicate such banal things, like, you know, I'm at the shops, I'm knitting, I'm, you know, I'm watching telly. But why not? I mean, this is what they're doing. And this actually could be very, very evocative. But if it's ironised, it seems to me something is lost too quickly, or the pleasure is in ironising it. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I'm cross-eyed, so you just wonder who I'm looking at. Okay, um, so uh, I wanted to return to what you said. Do I need to... What you said... Oh, uh, sorry. What you said about Winnicott and... I'm not sure if it's even... Oh, there we go. 
what you said about Winnicott and uh, the fact that you found him a, a pleasurable writer to read. Um, so it seems that if psychoanalysis is going to be, con- be convincing in contemporary society, if psychoanalysis is going to find a way of generating interest in itself, um, one means of doing that, as you suggest, is to make itself interesting and to make itself a pleasure to read. Uh, so your books, I would say, are a pleasure to read and very persuasive, uh, quite rhetorical. Um, the other mode of doing that would be to, to write, to sort of push it more in the direction of something very scientific, very objective, and a lot less readable. Um, so I, I wondered, a, you, you talk a lot about persuasion. This is not really about unforbidden pleasures, yeah, sure. but you talk a lot about persuasion. It seems to me like providing pleasure with what one's written uh, is integral to the to the process of persuading something someone to buy it in both senses of the word I think I'd put um, I agree with you but I think I'd put it the other way around which is um, the intention well my intention for example I can't say to you I'll tell you a great joke I can tell you a joke but you'll tell me whether it's great for you okay well that's the model for me of the writing which is I write things that I that I enjoy writing, um, then whether or not they're pleasurable or persuasive, other people will then tell me. I have no wish, consciously, to persuade anybody to be interested in psychoanalysis. I think psychoanalysis is interesting if you're interested in it. So, I mean, there's no big deal about it. It's, just, it's like ice cream. People who like it really like it and people who don't really don't. Um, but, but I'm interested in psychoanalysis. I'm really interested in it. So, and I'm writing from that position, but not with a view to converting anybody, because that wouldn't interest me. In many ways, I'm more interested in the effect it has uh, beyond or outside. I mean, I've, uh, the, something like the second or third book I wrote was called On Kissing, Tickling and Being Bored. A friend of mine um, owned a local bookshop, and she told me that um, a nun had come into her shop and told her that On Kissing, Tickling and Being Bored was her favourite book. And so Mary said to her, you know, what about you like? She said, well, actually, I haven't really read it, but the title <laughs> really works for me. And she'd been, she'd been working in Bosnia, and she carried this during the war, and she carried this book around with her, and the title of the book, she said, she found very sustaining. Now, for me, that's a fabulously wonderful use of a book I've written. <laughs> so I would want people to come out of reading my books not remembering the ideas and the multi senses or whatever but that they might be evocative in some way I mean it seems to me they should forget them really and then see what they digest or what sticks with them but the project consciously is not persuasion it's much more um, <coughs> noble and generous than that it just says I re- I'm really interested in this and this is the form my interest takes and, and it might interest you and it might not but I don't think of myself writing for psychoanalysts, or even necessarily people who are in psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. But they could be. Thank you. Does that begin to answer your question? Yeah, it's very interesting. Okay, good. Any nuns? Yeah, can I ask a question? Yeah. Hi, you, you talk about a number of times a relationship or an interesting discussion between psychoanalytic thought and liberalism and you say that uh, or you said you, you said that you thought the psychoanalysis was possibly a space where one can reconsider the history of one's relationship to authority how is is that 
does that give a clue to a kind of psychoanalytic understanding of what the social contract is in terms of consent? Uh, in the sense that we internalize, we all internalize authority and therefore it appears there's an agreement. How could you, could you, yeah. So. Um, I'm wary of the grandiosity, in, to my mind, of translating psychoanalysis into larger political realms. I don't mean interesting things can't be said. I just don't have confidence in my ability to say things because I feel like it's describing a world in language I don't know in, in that sense. What I do know of the social contract, I mean, I think that I assume that psychoanalysis comes out of an anxiety within liberalism. And, and by that I mean that there's an anxiety about, um, not simply an anxiety about authority, but an anxiety about how authority might be um, received, what we should be doing with it. So one of the very interesting things Winnicott says is what matters is not the analyst's interpretation, but what the patient makes of the analyst's interpretation. So it's not the given thing, it's what it can be done with it. It's a pragmatic view in many ways of psychoanalysis. Now that seems to me a good uh, uh, emblem of a certain kind of political conversation in which people are not trying to say things that everybody can agree with. In other words, there isn't a militant attempt to create consensus. It would be much more, I know this is absurd, but it would be much more a situation in which people would be um, offering people dream food. So all these things are said, I mean, like today, we're all here. Things have been said that may or may not be interesting to people. Somebody tonight might dream about that table. If they go to the analyst tomorrow and talk about that table, it will be infinitely more revealing to them probably than anything said tonight. In other words, there is something in us called a dreamer who has a very, very different agenda, has a different perceptual range. So it's as though we're interested in things we don't realise we're interested in. So I assume the point of a kind of social group is it offers we're offering each other stuff to dream with, with no obvious determinate end. And this is why it's like an anti-political politics in a way. It says that group life, that the problem with group life when it's organised politically is it has a determinate end. It has an aim or an ambition. And I think in a way psychoanalysis invented, this is an exaggeration, psychoanalysis invented to deal with the question of um, uh, the, the idea that people, because what they, they don't know what they want and their wants are evolving, they're always craving somebody will tell us tell them what they want. So what would wanting be like without an authority structure or without familiar authority structures? Now, I could go on, but it would be sort of rather boring. But I just think that the, the gist of it is definitely about liberalism. It's a question about liberalism. It's a question about what your, you know, the basic psychotic idea is you don't know the value of what you say until you've said it. You think you do, and that's what censorship is. But censorship is the problem. The problem is you think you know the value of your words before you say them, and that stops you speaking. Well, psychoanalysis says, speak, and see, and see where that takes you with any given listener, but a psychoanalytic listener particularly. And Francis says in his you know, conversation, in his correspondence with Freud, he says, um, why can't psychoanalysis exist everywhere? Why can't everybody say whatever they like to anybody? And it's a very interesting political question. You know, why is free association hemmed into an analytic situation? 
Why, and obviously Ferencsi was kind of encouraging this in a way, Ferencsi was saying to Freud, look, you've really discovered something amazing here. Let's just do it everywhere. And Freud's going... world in which we all um, said exactly what we thought would be like? Well, by definition, we couldn't know. So I can't answer that question. It would be an experiment. I mean, and, you know, I mean, there are obvious things we could probably all say, like, we'd all be fighting with each other all the time, or, you know, that sort of thing. But I think it's really unknown. Because I think it's as though, because we've already got a fixed picture of human nature, we know what will happen when it reveals itself to itself. Well, I think we don't know. And that's why it be genuinely, could be genuinely experimental. Well, I, I know what, what tends to happen when I do that. Um, it's a bit disastrous, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, well, that may be. Um, I just think that it's, it's, it's possible that your disaster could be re-described as something else, depending on who you described it to. Well, it creates chaos, certainly. Yeah, but there would, of course, be people who would say, great. Yeah, Let's have more cats. Let's have havoc. That's what my therapist said when I was honest with my family, certainly. But, um, you know, and it can have interesting results, but I experienced the most phenomenal guilt about it until I went to Yes, but being guilty about something is not a reason not to do it. No. No, absolutely. I mean, in some ways, it's a good reason to do it, it seemed to me. <laughs> yeah. Gentleman at the back of the room. I find that I keep coming back to this very same kind of question, which is something about how much freedom can we allow children to have to choose what they want to do? Is it about how much we can actually bear to let them have? I think that's true, but I think that children need to be, um, they need to be brought up by parents and that the role of the parents is, I think, to um, contain the inevitable anxiety that's attended upon wants, desiring. But I think that, um, ideally, what, what every child is up against is the, is the parent's anxiety, of course, about their own childhood. Um, I do think, though, again, and psychoanalysis is potentially useful here and potentially terrible, but the usefulness is to say... See if you can bear to listen to what your children say to you. That doesn't mean you permit them to do whatever they want. Uh, I mean, Anna Freud said, if you let children do whatever they want, they become violent. If you let adults talk about whatever they want, they talk about sex. Now, whether or not it's true, it's an interesting thing. It would seem to me that um, it would be a shame to think that children were violent in a entirely or unequivocally destructive way. Because you could think, for example, children are trying to find mm. out what the world is made of. They're trying, you know, in a Winnicottian way, they're trying to find out what they can destroy. And if they can destroy it, then it's no use to them. But of course, if you grow up in an ethos where all aggression is regarded as destructive, then you have a real problem on your hands. Similarly, I mean, again, you know this, but the, the, it's also a question about how much parents can bear to be loved by their children and to love them and how dangerous that feels you know uh, I can't remember who it was and maybe Anna Freud again said that uh, the child wants to love its mother with, with everything with its mind its body its heart its da, da, da. so there's a voracious love now the risk would be that that impulse to voraciously love gets lost in guilt and anxiety or too much guilt and anxiety 
So I think that we don't, you know, it's the same point, which is that um, what children are like, the joke's as good as its audience. What children are like depends entirely upon how they're received. Hmm. I think. Question, a question that back? Anyone there? One at the front. Yeah. Um, if, if one of the things that people object to about someone posting their dinner on Instagram is that it's boring, that, that's the, the kind of code of, behind that, um, what's the significance of people thinking that it's, it, there's something solipsistic in it? Um, does that tell us something about our attitudes to unforbidden pleasures. And secondly, if among the kind of subjects that we regard as often as boring in conversation because they're unforbidden, so people talk about their children, what they ate last night and so on, often people list hearing about someone's dream in that. Is that telling significant again about this subject of unforbidden pleasures? Well, I think pleasure? people talking about their children is riveting. <laughs> Mothers talking about their children is the most interesting game in town, I think. I'm not certainly going to disagree with this, but that's my experience. I think it's worth wondering, and again, psychoanalysis gives you language to do this, what's going on when you're bored? Because it would seem to be very likely that when you're bored, I mean, it'll be different in each instance and in each moment, but if you think of boredom as an attempt to produce a kind of fog, there are things that you don't dare say. One of the things you might not dare say is, I'm finding this very boring. But were you to do that, if you see what I mean, there'd be more likelihood of engagement. But I think that the risk is that there's a continual retreat from each other, that there's continual refuge is taken, and refuge is taken prominently in boredom. You can see it in children, it's very evident, that there's a kind of um, holding pattern. So it's, it's a version of, you know, when children say they're bored, often their parents think, oh, God, we've got to get them to do something. Well, actually, it's very interesting we say, be bored. And something will emerge from it. Or, you know, if, you, if this was in psychoanalysis, um, you know, you will discover that the child who says to you, as a therapist, I'm bored, is very often very cross about something or has got another pleasure on his mind. You see what I mean? In other words, this is not a blank. This is full. Um, I, think the, I think there's something rather boring about everybody complaining about modern technology and how solipsistic it's making everybody. I think you'd better to think people are changing. And obviously if you don't like it, you can voice that. Um, I do think I prefer sociability to solipsism most of the time. Um, but again, I think it's as though one would have to give an, elo an eloquent account of that to make a case for it. I think what might be interesting it would be to wonder how sociability might change in ways one might desire with this new technology, not how can we become more Luddite. Because that historically has been unpromising. Any more questions? <laughs> ah. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much to the Freud Museum and to Adam Phillips. Do buy his extraordinary book, it's for sale outside. I'm just going to end with a, a few lines uh, from from his book, and and um, they're not boring. I, I boredom is a very interesting subject, and um, we, we'll I have to ask you next time we speak. You know, is it okay to be bored when we read? And um, I'm never bored when I read Adam Phillips. 
The unforbidden gives us no orders. Promoting unforbidden pleasures means finding new kinds of heroes and heroines or dispensing with them altogether. Thank you very much.